I felt like doing a podcast about my latest book, The Sassafras 3. I released it a couple months ago. This book in particular, while most of it's all made up, obviously, the talking animals and whatnot, but it drew on a lot of things from my childhood growing up. So, I don't know, uh, sometimes it's fun to hear where writers get their ideas. I know I always like reading about my favorite authors and the things that inspired them growing up or the books they they drew inspiration from. The Sassafras Three is a book about an old man who loses his hat to a dust devil. An evil spirit of the air steals his hat, so the old man sets out on an adventure to reclaim his hat, meets people along the way, as you, you do on quests. Each new chapter provides new characters, new challenges, new things to overcome. And ultimately, well, I'm not going to tell you what happens. You need to read it. Now, if you haven't read it yet, you might not want to listen to me talk about it, because I'm going to, I won't say spoil, I'm not going to do a play-by-play of the book, but I am going to talk about things throughout the book from beginning to end that were uh, transcribed from my personal experience growing up. All that to say, get the book if you haven't, if you like reading. Otherwise, enjoy. The idea for this book first came, uh, I don't I don't know, I was doodling or something, I was drawing something, and I just had the idea of mixing fantasy with uh, westerns, specifically like cowboy westerns, frontier stories. See, I grew up in Midland, Texas, which is out west, where everything is dusty, and the only plants you'll see are some dying mesquite trees, or the odd tumbleweed, which is already dead, if it's tumbling. It was a scratchy sort of country. There were only dry trees and pointy shrubs and flaky red dirt. Not much grass to see. The hills were low and long, not even noticeable in some places. So it was, the ground would scratch you, the animals might scratch you, and the air was so dry and contrary it scratched your throat to breathe it. The town was fine. It was a very safe, nice little community, especially to be a kid in. You could go anywhere on your own. We would play in the ditch behind our house, or and there's a field also that's now, I think, a chain of, of medical offices. But back then it was a field that we would launch rockets and arrows and whatnot straight up into the sky and watch them fall down, try to avoid them. And as much as I grew up loving English uh, literature, fantasy books, fairy tales, obviously Narnia and Middle-earth and... George MacDonald, things like that. I also grew up loving westerns, um, Lonesome Dove, the sh- the TV show. I- I've yet to actually read the book, though I've read uh, several books by McMurtry. Of course, I enjoy Cormac McCarthy. In school, we read Fenmore Cooper. We read some early American literature about frontier days and braving the wild with muskets and flint and not much else. But both of my parents were from Alabama originally, so every year we'd drive roughly 18 hours to Alabama to enjoy seeing family and going to the beach and going to my grandparents' lake cabin. So a lot of memories from that journey, and that's that's roughly how the book works, begins in this red, dusty desert, and progressively the characters move east towards greener pastures, as it were. I was also in the Boy Scouts growing up, so we went camping a lot in Texas. Texas is 
giant, so you get all sorts of landscapes depending on where you go. And our scoutmaster had either his own land or friend's land, uh, so we had quite the sampling of the great state of Texas, and it was there were a lot of good memories from that to draw on as well. So again, the Sassafras Three really works as a fairy tale or fantasy. The heroes chasing down something, trying to reclaim something or discover something. From chapter one, we have the Dust Devil who steals the hat. He's the primary antagonist, and he is a dust devil, as simple as that. There were dirt devils, dust devils in Midland growing up. Not all the time, of course. Yeah, there were never really any major tornadoes that I recall, but there'd be dust storms where the sky was just red and dust is blowing everywhere. You get these tiny tornadoes, you could see them out. Sometimes they'd be no bigger than your leg moving around in the alley, and other times they'd, uh, they'd go up into the sky. Seemed like a logical enemy to have. Steal a hat, and the adventure begins. As a writer and storyteller, I try my best to not rip off other books and properties, but you can't help but be inspired by things. It's just the way it is. As uh, King Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. And that's especially true of stories. We're all just retelling and recycling things we've heard before. Trying to put our own unique voice and spin on it. This book begins with an old man chasing his hat, but we meet a hunter along the way, a braggadocious man who is pretty annoying, or he's intended to be annoying up front, but I wanted to write that kind of character who's a braggart and boastful and tells all these tall tales about how he's the best at what he does, but I wanted it actually to be true about this particular hero. Usually in stories you have these characters who brag about their abilities, and then when the testing time comes, they crumble and run off, but... This is a character that actually knows what he's about, even if he is a little arrogant and obnoxious about it. Then, of course, they're joined by Jackrabbit, and these three characters, the old man, the hunter, and the Jackrabbit, are uh, our primary heroes, so we meet quite a, quite a number of characters along the way, both good and bad. Like I said, I'm not going to retell the story here, but the characters move from this sort of West Texas landscape more into the hill country, eventually. In these hills, they meet a creepy old villain who has six fingers on each hand, the Woot. The Woot is lifted directly from growing up. Uh, in Boy Scouts, it was sort of a ghost story campfire tale, specifically about where we were camping. You know, that's the best story is when you are there and the devil might be lurking in the shadows even now, you know. So one of the merit badges I was taking was called Wilderness Survival, and one of the requirements was to spend a night uh, alone or with a friend out in the hills under a shelter with nothing more than a knife and a trash bag, I believe. So as they're taking us up, they tell us the story of Walter Wooten, who years ago he lived on this land with his parents. They were humble folk, honest workers renting on the land, and of course, Walter Wooten had six fingers on one hand. Now they're driving us up to drop us off for the night and abandon us, telling us about this man who grew up in this area and ultimately killed his parents and ran off into the hills, and he could still be out there. He is still out there. Watch out for Walter Wooten. It was a great story. Uh, luckily, I had a friend with me that night, so we weren't too intimidated by it, and we knew 
we did the math. If if this story really were true, if it was actually local history and not legend, uh, Walter Wooten, of course, is probably 90 years old by now, if he's alive at all. So we figured we could take a 90-year-old crazy man, if it came to it. Anyway, the story's too good to let it die, so Walter Wooten finds a second life in the Sassafras Three. In the middle of the story, he appears in the hills... Rather than having an extra finger on one hand, he has an extra finger on both hands, so he's the twelve-fingered Woot. The Woot, the twelve-fingered Woot, said the stranger. After the kings, after the bullmen and their canis critters, a mother and father found these hills pleasing, so they built a home and set to work herding goats. They had a child. He was a child of power. He was powerful enough to wear an extra finger on each hand. The mother and father were happy people. They smiled at each other as they herded their goats. They laughed as they milked the nannies. They sang songs at the end of each day's work and ate bread together. But the goats are gone. I've eaten everything in these hills. Another small thing in that chapter, while the heroes are camping, they hear a a group of javelinas somewhere nearby. That was also taken from the night we we were camping for the Wilderness Survival of Mare Badge. We're, you know, a little slightly nervous about Walter Wooten showing up. But we also heard a bunch of animal noises, javelinas passing by. And it can be quite noisy in the middle of the night, jabbering to each other. Now, a lot of things happen in this story. I, uh, looking back on it, I think I probably put too much into it. It's difficult to promote it because it reads like a child's story, but I don't try to hold back too much, even in these books. I I want to tell the story that I want to tell, so I'm not trying to be patronizing. They're definitely darker themes, and I wrote it in a style that, uh, again, I think anyone can read and enjoy. Sort of the idea that this is an old cowboy sort of figure telling this tale around a campfire or somewhere in a cabin. The story moves along with mostly made-up elements and characters, but in the last act, my childhood comes roaring back into view. They're in the country Gom, G-O-M, which was just taken from the city Montgomery, where my mom grew up. So they're in Gom. It's much greener than the beginning of the story. The red dirt of Mullinora, a.k.a. Midland. And in Gom, they go to Lake Mar, which is where we vacationed a lot growing up, Lake Martin in Alabama. Within ten minutes they could see the lake. Olacora led them out of the wood and they found they were on a stretch of bare land where were only yellow sharp stones and pine straw and the shells of beech nuts. The lake ahead was beautifully dire. It flowed out from its banks, its waters black and calm. A gray fog drifted over its surface, rising to the sky. The old man and Nash could already see the forms of ghosts on the water. Some were halfway submerged, as if they were waiting, and their heads poked out. Some sat on top of the lake's waves. Others loomed above it, free to drift, but not to fly. And the heroes, for one reason or another, are pressed to go out to this island in the lake. The lake is haunted by ghosts. That, uh, fortunately, was not a childhood memory. They go out to this island called the Island of Rotting Beauty, and that was also... There was a small sliver of land out uh, on the lake, Lake Martin, in real life. 
And we'd canoe out to it, and I think my brother one time swam out to it. It wasn't that far, but it was, you know, pretty impressive that he made it. We'd row out there, and it was a just a, a little tiny patch of land with some pine trees growing on it. The sand had what we called fool's gold. I don't know what it really was, but it was very sparkly and shiny. They had arrived on it. Although the air was gray and difficult, the island was clearer than ever. Its shores approached. The windy trees were almost as visible as on a normal day. They understood then why they could see everything better. The gravelly sand of the beaches of the isle glittered and glamoured. There were gold lights twinkling all across it. Gold flecks and flakes, shards and chips, grain and gobbit. All gold. It is fool's gold, said Nash. Do not mind it, but I am grateful for its radiance. And in more recent years, Canadian geese made their home on the island. You'd land on the shore and these geese would come at you hissing and honking. There's something pretty devilish about Canadian geese. I don't know if you've ever been up close with them. Really, most geese are fairly hostile, and I don't know why. Very territorial birds. It was a large bird, waddling with spite in its stride. Its neck was long and like a viper, colored black with a white stripe on its face. The bird's wings were spread wide as if to fly, but it waddled forward to them. Its neck lurched forward, and its beak opened, its thin tongue revealed, and it hissed. It hissed like you wouldn't think a bird could, like a great cat or a lesser dragon. Hissing, hissing, the claws on its toes were curved and red. The bird may have looked like a goose, but it was not a goose. Mayhaps it wasn't even a bird. It walked steadily toward the hunter and the hare. It would not stop. The reason we called it the Island of Rotting Beauty was because it looked nice and pretty on the outside, but you'd get there and it'd be a bunch of dead trees and thorny bushes and aggravated waterfowl. There are also flying squirrels in the woods around the cabin. And one year on vacation, I believe we'd watched the movie Willow. If you've never seen it, it's worth a watch. The story's a little, shall we say, derivative of bigger fantasy stories like The Lord of the Rings. You have a bunch of little people trying to save the world. It was just a movie of its time, a good old 1980s fantasy film. And we'd seen it, my little brother. Well, in the in the film, there's uh, there are brownies who are like three inches tall. These tiny little critters wearing mouse skins for clothes and the, the comic relief of the movie. So my brothers that that year on vacation pretended there were brownies in the woods. They're shooting arrows at them from the tree, little tiny men. So something like that appear in the story. The tiny tree people and the flying squirrels. And there's so many other odds and ends when you think about where things come from in a idea or a book. The Terrapin character in the Sassafras 3, I think I've got some illustrations stuck in my mind from childhood from an old Br'er Rabbit story, I think, of a, ter- a turtle. I, well, that's where I learned the, the word Terrapin, water turtle. And there's some drawing in one of those stories, which I I never understood the, the stories because they were written in such a thick dialect. Most would probably consider racist nowadays, but... What I liked about them was how that world was just populated by talking animals. And there's one drawing of a terrapin, I believe, giving like a speech by water to the other animals. 
So the Terrapin father in the Sassafras Three also has a similar moment where he's rallying the, the swampers, the, the folk of the swamp, to, to take action. After they'd given their children a good supper and put them to rest, the parents congregated at the Father Terrapin's cabin by the Black Creek in the swamp. The Terrapin stood on a rock near the water and addressed the crowd. There, by candlelight, they decided upon seeking out the strangers. There's also, I believe, a reference to Trixie and Roy, my other fairy tale book. If you didn't catch it, go look for it. If you're going to read the book for the first time, be on the lookout for it. Now, don't misunderstand. I think I've covered a lot of dark, sinister elements from the story. There's quite a bit of humor and silliness. The jackrabbit plays the fool more often than not. No, he's not really playing. And, I mean... Man, there's so many characters in this story. Talking animals, a buffalo king, a traveling salesman. Oh yeah, I haven't covered him. Olacora John, peddler of sassafras ale. It was another human, sitting in a wagon, driving a little steady horse. The wagon clanked with whatever sat inside it, and the horse's hooves clopped sunnily as it went. Salutations, said the man driving the wagon. You heroes look thirsty. He was a fellow with a smile on his mouth, a long beard clasped to his jaw. He wore a hat and some woolen robes cinched at his skinny waist by a snake-scale belt. His wagon was covered in fabric. The fabric was painted with many wonderful stripes of blue and green and gray and yellow and red. I am by trade a brewer. I dispense the very richest, finest drink in Gaum, Molinora, and all the unsorted lands. Sassafras Ale, Beer of the Root. Now, it's very subtle, so you might not notice it, but he sells root beer. The idea for that came from one time we were when we were at the cabin in Alabama. My dad decided to take us on a little hunt for a sassafras tree to f- dig up the root because root beer comes from that, the flavor of it. Anyway, we walked for probably an hour all around looking for this plant, and couldn't find it, so we head back, and sure enough, a stone's throw from the cabin and the trees next to it, my dad sees a sassafras tree or plant. I don't exactly recall how big it was, but he dug it up and showed us the root. And as I recall, it smells exactly like root beer. So there's your fun fact for the day. But how, you may ask, do the heroes get the name the Sassafras Three? Well... You have to read the book. That was actually the last thing I came up with the story, for the story, because I'm just awful at naming entire books. I've said this before, but chapters are fine because they only focus on a certain limited amount of events. But the book, it's just about everything. So what do you call? What do you what do you name the entire thing? You know. So the Sassafras Three was a last minute idea that wasn't actually in the book. And so I had to go back and insert a couple lines of dialogue that made it legitimate. But I think it works and fits pretty nicely in there. And I am fond of the title, When All is Said and Done. So if you read the book, this was hopefully fun for you to listen to. To a few of the memories and background information on some of the elements of the story. If you haven't read it... I think you'd like it. I don't just say that because I want you to read it. I actually think it's worth reading. 
It's got magic, it's got adventure, it's got surprises, it's got battles, it's got poetry. It has tender-hearted moments, it has moments of despair and horror. Got birds wearing masks, we've got dragons and swamps, we've got a witch that kidnaps children. Muskrats and ducks and chipmunks, terrapins and everything. And if you are listening to this, I don't want anyone who's not listening to this, but if you are listening to this and you read the book and you liked it, please, please write a review for it on Amazon. I would be so grateful and appreciative of that. If you haven't, and some of you have, and I'm, again, so thankful that you did that. It means so much to me, and it's it's just a, it's just fun and encouraging to see what people say about something you worked so long and hard on and cared so much about. So thank you. If you haven't read it and you plan to, please write a review once you finish it. And please be honest. You don't need to lie. Or if there are elements you weren't fond of, nothing wrong with that. Everyone's got their opinion. Thanks for listening. I might do more of these if I... Really, it's a matter of topics and subjects. So far, all I've done is this and another one, talking about myself and talking about writing. If you have any ideas for topics I could ramble on about, let me know. If you have any questions, send me a message or leave a comment. If you enjoyed this podcast, also tell me, because if you don't, I won't know. It's just that simple. Feedback is appreciated. Have a nice day. Thanks for listening.